American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here. It's been great. Um, uh, I, 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 I'm going to attempt to talk about you know, uh, uh, this, this subject of, of uh, the New Deal and workers. This is a very large subject, potentially. Uh, and so I think the challenge uh, today, as well as I'm sure the challenge in your classroom, is you know how do you figure out what the big points are, what the big messages you want to get over without drowning in all the details and the examples. And for me, part of the problem is that the details and the examples are actually pretty fascinating. So you know you get tempted to to to, to get uh, drawn into them, but um, I, I think. Uh, if you do that, sometimes you could lose what the main story, the, the sort of takeaway you want to give to students. So what I thought I would try to do would be to try to focus a little bit on that. Um, before doing that, let me say I think in some ways teaching this subject of workers in the New Deal is easier than it would have been 10 years ago, and in some ways I think it's, it, it, it's harder. Uh, what makes it, I think, easier is the so-called Great Recession of the last five years. You know, things that Americans did not spend a lot of time talking about. Uh, Mortgage defaults, unemployment, homelessness, debt, economic uh, uh, restructuring, bank regulation, go down the line. These have become everyday subjects uh, in our national discussion over the last five years. You know, and now I'm sure a lot of middle school students may not necessarily be up on all the ins and outs of home foreclosures, but you know, nonetheless, it's kind of in the air in a way that it wasn't 10 years or 15 years ago. And these, of course, are precisely the same issues that so many Americans were talking about in the 1930s, and they're so associated with the New Deal. So in some ways, because we are living through a great moment of economic crisis and debate about how to respond, I think it makes it more uh, immediate, more graspable to try to put ourselves back in the days of the, of the 1930s and the New Deal. The part that I think it makes it harder is the labor or the worker part of the story. Uh, if you go back 20 or 30 years ago, unions were a much more powerful force in American life. Today, um, only 11% uh, of American workers belong to a union. Uh, and that's way down from the peak in the 1940s of something like 35%. Now, you know, we live in New York City, and here we're a bit of an exception. The, the, right now, 22% of workers in New York belong to a union. So the decline has not been as drastic uh, as it has been in, in, in the country as a whole. But nonetheless, I think uh, the ideas and the terminology and the experience of organized labor is less familiar to students today, even in New York City, than it was a generation or two ago. So I think in that sense, um, it's somewhat harder than it used to be. So uh, with that as a preface, let me say what I think are some of the big points that I would want to get over to students about the New Deal and labor. Uh, and I'm just going to just mention them now and then try to talk through as many of them as possible. So I, I am a, like an unbelievably backward teacher. I just stand up and talk. I don't even use things like this. But I'm going to try to attempt to use this thing to uh, write down some of, the, some of the big points that I think. Um, the first I would make is big change. It's a simple point, but I think it's a really important one. Wow, you can't, I can't even read that. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I think the New Deal illustrates that um, big changes actually don't happen gradually. They often happen rather suddenly. 
there are special moments where for whatever reason, lots of things change, and then you go into long periods of time, not all that much changes. And when we're talking about the, uh, the New Deal, we're talking about one of those special moments in history when American life gets restructured. I would say myself uh, that after the Civil War, the New Deal is actually the, the second most important moment of restructuring of American life. Um, uh, the second thing I would try to get over is uh, that the, the New Deal is a stage in a longer process of the changing ideas of the role of government, and particularly in the expansion of the role of government in American life. Uh, uh, this has been a long process, I'd say at least 100 years now we've been going through it, and of course, as we all know, a highly controversial process, one controversial at the New Deal era, and obviously one very much controversial uh, in our society today. The third thing, I'm not sure if it's a point, but something I would want to talk about is, you know, why? Why do we have this big change at that particular moment? And why do we have this change in the role of uh, government uh, in American life? And, and that's, I'm not sure if I can answer that question, but it's at least something that we would want to talk to students about. Uh, the fourth thing, obviously, in this context would be the issue of labor and the New Deal and the relationship between them. And I'm going to argue that th these are very closely linked, that the rise of the modern labor movement was facilitated by the New Deal, but it also made the New Deal possible, that these are mutually supportive developments, the expansion of unions and, and the, new, the New Deal. And then the final thing I would want to talk about, and I hope we have some time today to talk about, is, is what didn't happen, uh, what the limits of the New Deal were, and maybe why. Uh, what were the ideas that didn't get put into effect? Uh, and, and what does that tell us about the whole moment in American history? So that's a very big agenda. I'm not so sure we could get through all of that today, but at least uh, I'll give it a shot. Um, now, having said that you want to focus on the big points, I think realistically, before you get into these kind of more analytic points, you have to give students uh, and ourselves some sense of what we're actually talking about here. You know? So you clearly do have to talk about what the New Deal was. And I think that's tricky because you could get lost in so many things happen, you know, that you get lost in the welter of all the specific organizations. You know, people talk about the so-called alphabet soup. I'm sure you've heard that phrase, you know, the, you know, the, 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 the NRA, the WPA, the PWA, the CWA, the CCC, you go down, you know, and, and it gets very confusing. So I think I try to start by talking about the impact of the New Deal on everyday life. In other words, what it did more than the specific agencies uh, that did it. Um, and, and I think, of course, the New Deal did have tremendous transformation. And I, I sometimes start by talking about this, the physical transformation, you know, not in social programs, but in our sort of physical infrastructure. Um, now, we live in New York, so in some ways this example is not maybe the best one, but to me the most dramatic change, or one of them, is, you know, before the New Deal, rural America had no electricity. After the New Deal, it does. You know, in 1935, only one out of 10 American farms had electricity. Uh, when you get to 1959 out of 10, and the difference between 
Those two dates is something called the Rural Electrification Administration, which is a New Deal pro project that brought electricity to American farms. And you know, it would be an interesting exercise to try to get students to think about what it would be like not to have electricity. Now, you, some of you may have students that grew up in places without electricity. I mean, I don't know. You know, that may be the case, and it would be fun to have them talk about that. But, you know, I, I was thinking about this about 10 minutes ago. I was looking over my notes. I was thinking, what the heck was it like to run a dairy farm without electricity? You know, and then I thought, thank God I live in New York City. You know, I, I don't even want to know what that's like. But, you know, you, when you think about the change, uh, that, that, that this simple thing, the New Deal brought electricity to American farms. You know, we're talking about a radical transformation in American life. And that's just one example. It obviously built the great hydroelectric dams, uh, irrigation projects, courthouses, uh, schools, roads, bridges. Virtually every single county in America has some sort of project built by the New Deal. And I look at my own life. So I went to Bayside High School. Who built the Bayside High School? The New Deal. There were five high schools in New York City that were built as New Deal construction projects. I can't remember all of them. Uh, Lafayette, uh, Bayside, they all look exactly the same. It's sort of amusing. The first time I saw Lafayette High School, I was like, ah, it looks like my high school. Um, uh, so I went to a high school that was built by the New Deal. Um, the the uh, Triborough Bridge, which I spent too much of my life on, uh, was uh, finished by the New Deal. It had begun. They ran out of money. Uh, it, the 6th Avenue subway, the D-Train, was uh, built with New Deal funds. Um, uh, I sometimes, my daughter lived in Chicago, I used to take the Delta shuttle, which actually left from a separate building at LaGuardia Airport, and there's this wonderful mural inside that building. Well, who paid for it? The New Deal, right? Uh, uh, I, uh, you could go, I, I used to live, I just moved, but I used to live in Upper Manhattan in Inwood, at Inwood Hill Park. Who built Inwood Hill Park? The New Deal. Right? And, and actually, I think it would be an interesting and fun thing to uh, get your students uh, to do a little research. What's, what's the New Deal project in, in your neighborhood? You know, um, there was just an article about the Bronx Central Post Office, uh, which I think is on lower Grand Concourse, if I'm not mistaken, uh, which they're thinking about getting rid of, because they're thinking about getting rid of the whole post office system. Yeah. Well, there's a wonderful New Deal mural inside that post office. You know. Um, so, uh, the whole, I'm going to go on, on. The point here is this is not some distant experience. This is an experience that affected people in uh, 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 everyday life. And of course, the physical structure uh, of uh, change is only a small part of it. You know, in a broad sense, the New Deal represents a redefinition of the role of government, and particularly the role of the federal government in, in, in American life, a kind of vast expansion of our conception of what government should be doing for us as, as citizens, as residents of the United States. Um, a lot of these uh, initiatives were initially conceived of as temporary, as ways to deal with the temporary economic emergency, but many of them, in fact, became permanent, and you got a permanent expansion in the size of government. It's very substantial. Uh, in 1930, there were 860,000 Fancy blackboard. Um, 1930, there were uh, 860,000 federal employees. By the time you get to 1940, it 
that's 1.5 mil, uh, million. And if you look at spending, it actually goes up even faster. It, 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 it more than uh, doubles, almost triples during uh, this 10-year period of time. Uh, so the government takes on a whole new set of functions. Now, before I go into a few specifics, you know, this is not the first time there were debates about what function government should play in American life. And particularly, you know, when you talk about the progressive era, uh, there was an expansion of the role of government. Uh, 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 you know, the idea that it should play more of a role in regulating the economy, uh, that it should uh, kind of mediate social and class conflict, that it should guarantee certain minimal standards of well-being. But there was a limit to how it should expand it, because there's a lot of skepticism about the implications of a bigger government. And these are arguments that you still hear today. Uh, there was a feeling that Americans had to worry about the threat of coercive state power. Um, that, you know, uh, if you think about the long-term American political philosophy, you know, a lot of it was the notion that individual liberty uh, had to be protected from state interference. You think about, you know, what's our uh, Bill of Rights. Our Bill of Rights is mostly about protecting individuals from the government, right? And this accords with a classic notion of uh, what liberty is, you know, that liberty uh, lay in the freedom of the individual from the state. Th these ideas, of course, are still floating around. So about uh, 10 minutes ago, I was looking at the newspaper, there was some bill in Oklahoma to outlaw texting while you were driving. And it just got defeated or in, the, in the Oklahoma uh, State Assembly, or whatever they call it, their legislature. And they quoted some you know, uh, legislator who said, you know, well, I think people should drive sensibly, but you know, I hate the government telling people how they should behave. You know? And you know, people, you know, what's the next thing they're going to tell you? You can't eat an orange while you're driving? You know? um, well, I mean, that's the sort of classical fear of the state, right? And that was a big factor. Um, up through the New Deal in restraining the expansion of the role of government. But for reasons we try to get to the why question in a little while, that breaks down in the 1930s. And, and, and in the face of an economic crisis and other changes, there's a tremendous uh, redefinition of, of what government uh, should do. Um, and, and it took many forms. Some of it was the idea of relief, helping individual citizens uh, facing economic catastrophe. That was considered a function for local government or private charity before the New Deal. Now the federal government steps in uh, with all kinds of programs to help individuals. There are also all kinds of programs, some of them don't really succeed all that well, to try to revive the economy. So there's the notion that the government has a stewardship role over the private sector economy, right? Its job, which didn't used to be the way people thought about it was to ensure that the private sector was prosperous. Lots of new regulatory agencies, a lot of them we still have, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the FCC, the, the FDIC, all these kinds of organizations. Uh, a new role in agriculture, which again, for New York kids probably doesn't mean a whole lot, but uh, this is a revolution in agricultural policy where the federal government now steps in for the first time to ensure that farmers can make a uh, living uh, out of uh, growing things through systems of crop subsidy, uh, crop limitation, price setting, a whole different set of techniques, 
most of which are still being used today, although mostly now they go to huge agricultural corporations uh, that are designed to uh, help the farmers uh, who are particularly hard hit. Labor. Labor is another particular area in which the government now expands its role. Primarily, up to the 1930s, labor relations, the relations between individuals and their employers were considered a private matter, an issue of private contract. You make a deal between, you know, and you and an employee make a deal, I'll work for you, you're going to pay me, you know, $9 an hour. That's not the government's business, right? And unions were uh, really of uncertain legal status to the extent that the government did get involved. It tended to be uh, to impose on the side of business, you know, uh, with injunctions against strikes, occasionally using the army or state police or so forth against strikes. Now, in 1935, comes the Wagner Act. Uh, oh, I'm use every color here before I'm done. Uh, the Wagner Act, uh, uh, named after uh, the senator from New York, Robert Wagner, which gives a federal legal standing to unions. It actually says collective bargaining is a good thing. The national policy of the United States should be to encourage collective bargaining because it not only gives workers rights, but it balances the power of business and it raises spending power, which is good for all of us. So, you know, farm policy, labor policy, things you wouldn't even think of, crime policy. The federal government really didn't have a lot to do with crime fighting until the New Deal. But now you get a big expansion of the FBI, you get federal laws about kidnapping, about weapons. You get Alcatraz, you know, the, remember the Birdman of Alcatraz, one of my favorite, with Burt Lancaster. I loved that movie when I was a kid. That Alcatraz is a New Deal program, actually. It's like the federal uh, supermax pro, you know, prison. Uh, there's new Indian policy, Native American policy. There's uh, federal involvement in the arts with murals. You go, you go down, 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 down. And then there is the development, not right away, but starting in what's called the Second New Deal in 1935, of a kind of limited welfare state. And this, you know, in some ways is the, one of the most lasting impacts of the New Deal, um, which was to provide a series of programs through the federal government for American individuals to ensure uh, their uh, well-being in, in, in stages of life or difficult times. Uh, the most obvious example of this is Social Security, uh, which comes in 1935. That same law also sets up the unemployment insurance system, which is a federal program, although it's run through the individual states. Um, uh, we get uh, welfare programs for the dependent, originally called uh, uh, aid for uh, dependent children, later changed to be aid for families of dependent children, that uh, help families that have children. This is particularly when they first thought about it, uh, widowed mothers uh, and other uh, uh, primarily women in situations where they didn't have income to help their children, uh, programs for the disabled, for the blind, for other groups, uh, some public housing, small scale originally, uh, and then uh, one of the last New Deal laws uh, setting uh, maximum hours and minimum wages. The Fair Labor Standards Act, it's 1938, and that's the law that to this day still establishes the idea that you have a 40-hour work week. Beyond that, you have to get overtime. And it sets a federal minimum wage, uh, which has been lifted somewhat over the years. Uh, but the concept remains exactly the same. So these are all you know, really, really um, 
huge expansions. You know, sometimes people say, oh, well, compared to what happened in Europe during these same years, these are actually relatively modest programs, and that's uh, true enough, but I think uh, compared to what the American tradition had been until then, these really represent a, a fundamental break. And as I say, you know, it's a spurt of change, and, and these programs rem essentially remain you know, intact, at least most of them, uh, through World War II. Some of them get dismantled during the war because of the war emergency or because of the economic recovery that comes with it. But the key ones remain in place. Um, and then in the 1960s, you get another second burst that builds on this, the, the Johnson Great Society, which is not a subject today, but very much is a kind of uh, extension of the New Deal. Uh, and that also happens very quickly, in two or three years, and then uh, nothing much happens. And then, uh, you know, we got last year uh, the health care bill, which is a kind of third, although the smallest of all three of these moments, of a kind of expansion, once again, of, of, of the uh, federal program. So uh, that's, that's kind of what happens, you know, in, in rushing through it. And, of course, you know, there's a zillion details. And as I said, a lot of them are interesting. You look at these... Uh, dam building projects or the labor law or what's going on in American farming. All this can be really fascinating. And I, but, you know, for now, I just wanted to sketch it out very briefly. So that gets us to the question, you know, why? Why does this all happen? And, you know, I think this is a case where I think we all start, at least I started, with, with a connection which I think turns out to be both true and too simple which is, oh, it's because of the Depression, right? You know, there's a depression, a terrible de depression, unprecedented circumstances, so everything changes, you know? Now, this is why it's easier to talk about this now than it would have been 10 years ago, because we've th we lived through a terrible recession, and nothing's changed, right? <laughs> nothing changed. You know, the same people who run everything yeah. still run it. You know, the same guys who brought down the economy, you know, populate the banks in the Obama administration. Everyone who had foreclosed mortgages still got foreclosed mortgages. You know, they didn't get bailed out. The bank got bailed out. Everything basically was frozen, right? Nothing. So we go through this terrible disaster and nothing changes. So, you know, it, it's too simple to say that there's simply a depression and things change. And in fact, you know, it's not just today. You can go the, before the New Deal. Uh, in fact, there's nothing unusual in American history about bad economic times, you know? Starting with the aftermath of the War of 1812, you know, in like 1817, Pretty much every 20 years, 1837, 1857, uh, the, the, the uh, mid-1870s, the mid-1890s, uh, there is an economic downturn. There's a bad downturn. So downturns, cyclical downturns, are, are, are not unusual in American life. They're a feature of American life. They're just part of our history, uh, as we are discovering once again uh, these days. Uh, so why the 1930s? Why does this change? And why this type of change? Because, you know, after all, we're not the only country that goes through a difficult time in the 1930s. That's pretty much a worldwide depression. And lots of countries change, but lots of them go in different directions. This is the great moment of the rise of fascism, right? Which in part is a response to the depression, right? And, you know, when we talk about the rise of fascism, it's not just Germany. But, you know, it's Italy, it's Romania, it's, it, it, it's you know, lots of Eastern and Central Europe. Even in, in, in France, uh, 
And in other parts of Europe, there are fascist parties. You know, a lot of people think the Japanese government has some similarities. So that's one response. And then there's a rise of left-wing movements, socialist movements, communist movements uh, in a lot of the world in response too. So, you know, there are lots of different ways to respond to economic crises. We don't go either of those directions. We take this, this other path. And, and, and exactly why we, on one hand, do respond more to the depression in the 1930s than previous downturns, and why we respond in this particular way, I think it's a tough question, you know? And I don't know, you know, I, I, I don't teach the students you teach, so I'm not even sure how much you could get this across it, but I think it's something worth thinking about and talking about. Um, some of it, I think, has to do with the particularities of this depression, the depression in the 1930s, which in some ways is different than other economic downturns. Uh, first of all, it's, it's deeper and more drastic than uh, almost any other economic crisis in American history. Um, in 1933, national income, in other words, the income of everybody in the country put together, is only half of what it had been in 1929. And about, there was no really accurate unemployment statistics, but the estimates are about one out of every three workers was out of a job. So, you know, at the height of our downturn, what was it, like a 10 point something percent or maybe 11 percent in 2009? I can't exactly remember. But we're talking about something three times as much uh, in terms of level of unemployment, which is a, probably a pretty good rough measure of how bad a crisis you're living through than we lived through uh, in, in the past few years. So this is a very, very, very severe crisis. And of course, a lot of the protections we have today were not in place. So 5,000 banks failed during the Depression. Now, unlike today, you know, where you have federal insurance, that was something that came out of the, the New Deal. Uh, when the banks failed, if you had the money in the bank, you're going to get none of your money or only part of your money back. I remember my own grandparents talking about having their savings. They were like working class people. They didn't have a lot of money, but they had some savings in a bank, and the bank went bankrupt, and they couldn't get their money for a couple of years, and eventually I think they got like 30 cents for every dollar they had in the bank. So, you know, the, the impact is, is, is exceptionally uh, severe and exceptionally prolonged. Remember, the New Deal uh, really doesn't begin until 1933. That's fully four years into the recession, right? So if you time that to our current experience, you know, the big free fall, you know, of, of the banks in like 2008, right? Uh, we're kind of at the moment, in terms of the length of time since then, when the New Deal begins, right? You know, so it, people are already through four or five grinding years of, of really terrible economic times. And it's not just uh, that uh, it's a bad period. It makes Americans begin to think, maybe this isn't a cycle. Maybe this is just the new normal, right? You know, maybe the American economic system has fundamentally broken down. Uh, so I think in the past people thought, well, you just kind of tough it out and eventually things will recover. And that's what people like President Hoover said in the early days of the Depression. He says, you know, America's fundamentally sound. The factories haven't disappeared. The people haven't disappeared. You know, we have business cycles. It, it's hard, but, you know, things are going to get better. Well, by 1933, 34, people began to think, hey, maybe things are not going to get better. You know, maybe something really is, is really broken. As part of that, they also began to say, look, you know, who, who led this system? You know, the 1920s was a, a period 
I think much like the uh, post-Reagan years were in, uh, when business was celebrated in American life. You know, the heroes of America were businessmen, you know, Henry Ford, and the presidents were all very pro-business Republicans. You know, uh, first you had uh, Harding, and then you had Coolidge, and then you had Hoover. And these guys were heroes, you know, in their own day, you know. And then everything collapses. Now, those guys all claim credit for American prosperity. They said, we've defeated the business cycle. American capitalism has you know, uh, brought prosperity unprecedented in world history, right? Well, once you claim credit, you, know, you put yourself in a position for blame. And one of the things that happened was by 1933, 34, 35, the traditional leadership of America was discredited. It was really seen as responsible for the disaster that had come to America. And people just didn't want to listen to them anymore. You know, uh, Congress had big investigations. Uh, <laughs> one of the funniest things, this is so bizarre. Uh, you know, the, the Congress did big investigations at the banks, you know, the bankers. They called up uh, J.P. Morgan, right, the most important banker in America. Someone hires like this midget to break into the hearing room and jump onto J.P. Morgan's lap. Right? It's like the theater of the absurd, right? You know? and, and, and Morgan, a dignified man, he doesn't know what to do. It's like midget sitting on his lap, you know, at this congrats. You know, he becomes like a laughable figure, you know. And again, it's so interesting how that's not the case now. You know? uh, somehow or another, for reasons that are completely beyond me, you know, bankers and hedge fund guys and you know, people, many of whom work for the government to this day, you know, Tim Geithner, people like this, the people that brought you the catastrophe. They're not laughable figures, you know. They're not figures of derision. You know, a lot of people resent them. They don't think they should get all this money and all that. But they haven't. Their ideas have not been discredited. You know, in fact, we've re-upped to their ideas over and over and over again. That doesn't happen in the 1930s. You know, and that creates an opening for different ideas. I think this is extremely uh, important. Uh, in understanding why so much change happens. There's a kind of political vacuum into which new things can move. And one of the things that happens is that you get mass movements. Uh, so I think the New Deal should not be taught, as it's often taught, as simply, oh, Franklin Roosevelt comes in and he saves America, right? You know, I, someone just gave me a, I moved, I just mentioned, I moved about th th uh, this summer. Someone gave me this wonderful housewarming gift. It's a it's a clock from, that was made, I guess, around 1934. And it's, uh, a pic and, and it's a little statue. It's like a metal casting. And it's Franklin Roosevelt on the brow of a ship holding like a thing steering the ship. And in the middle of it's the clock, right? And so the idea is Franklin Roosevelt steering the ship of state, right? You know, he's going to steer America out of its crisis to save land. One of the amusing things about it is Franklin Roosevelt standing up like this. Because Franklin Roosevelt couldn't stand, right? You know, the guy was in a wheelchair. But, you know, that was not the way they portrayed him. Um, uh, but, you know, that image is often the image that's associated with the New Deal. You know, this was a great, heroic, wonderful leader. And, you know, that may all be true, but, but there's also a, a bubbling up from below that's equally important. And I think that's something that really is something important to explain to our students, you know. Uh, there are many new kinds of mass movements. There are movements of the unemployed uh, who organize themselves. Uh, one of the famous things they do here in New York and Chicago and other cities is they form community groups to fight evictions. And when people are evicted from their apartments because they can't pay their rent, 
they uh, literally, you know, and back in those days, it, they would literally take the furniture and, you know, in your house and they'd, the sheriff would come and they'd say, you know, you pay your rent, you got to get out of here. And they'd take the furniture and they'd put it on the sidewalk, you know. And, you know, you see these poignant pictures of people and their kids, they're sitting on their sofa in the middle of the sidewalk, you know. So these groups would just move people back in, you know. And sometimes the police would try to stop them. There'd be fights. There were, in Chicago, a number of people were killed in these uh, demonstrations. Uh, but these were big groups, and they demanded unemployment insurance. They said, the government's got to do something. It's not our fault, right? It's not that we didn't work hard, that we don't want a job. You know, uh, the system has broken down, and you got to do something. So you get those kinds of groups. You get veterans groups. The famous bonus march. These are World War I veterans that say, you know, we served our country, now there's a depression, uh, we can't support ourselves, we can't support our family, you gotta do something. They march to Washington, this is before Roosevelt was elected, and they camp out in Washington until finally uh, the Hoover administration sends the United States Army to evict them, break up their tent camp, and send them back home. Um, there were farmers, farmers just like uh, renters are losing uh, their property. They're being evicted because they can't pay the debt, the money they borrowed to buy their land or buy their equipment. Uh, and there are forcible interruptions of farm auctions, foreclosure auctions. You know, what would happen is the bank would take over the farm and then they'd send a, uh, uh, an auctioneer to auction the land and the bank would keep whatever money they could get from the, the sale, you know. Uh, and by the way, sometimes the government do, did that if people paid taxes and they were in default on their taxes. The government would take over the land in the auction. So people would go to the auction, big crowds would go to the auction. The person who lost their land would bid, they'd bid a dollar, and someone else would bid more and they'd find a gun in their back. And then they would throw their bid. And then the person who, um, you know, and then someone, the police would come, you know, this, this was complicated. But uh, there was, you know, intimidation, coercion. Uh, used uh, threats to, to prevent this. And of course there was a growing labor movement. And this again doesn't happen right away, but within a year or two of the beginning of the downcast, uh, there are lots of workers who begin uh, protesting pay cuts, uh, which many companies put in place when the economy tanks. Uh, uh, almost all companies across America initially cut uh, pay by 10%. Uh, people are working less hours. Of course unemployment is very High, and after uh, this builds and builds, uh, by 1933, 1934, 1935, you see growing movements of workers. They're often barely organized. They're, they, you know, they're, 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 some of them are in unions, some of them aren't even unions, demanding jobs, demanding uh, restoration of pay cuts, but also demanding a voice in, in the decision-making. Uh, at, at the place of employment. In other words, some form of collective bargaining or union representation. Uh, and then you get all kinds of radical groups. Radical groups of the left, radical groups of the right. Uh, they're never huge, but the socialists, the communists uh, articulate alternatives, different ways of thinking about these problems. So all these things are the background against which the New Deal happens. And although, you know, some people say, oh, you know, Roosevelt, he only reforms things because he realizes that there's going to be a more radical change unless he steps in. I think that's a little simplistic. But there's no question that uh, not just Roosevelt, but Congress and governors and mayors are responding to, to this situation uh, in the context of growing public outrage 
and growing organization of social movements. And again, you know, I'm not sure I could completely explain why we've seen a lot less of this uh, in recent years. You know, we had Occupy and a few other things. Not that much. Let me say a few more words about labor specifically. Um, we don't have a huge amount of time left before I want to leave lots of time for questions. But I would stress here that this is a good way of showing the complicated relationship between government, the law, and social movements, people acting on their own. Uh, because on one hand, the upsurge of labor precedes any legal change or any significant legal change. Um, it's, it's beginning to bubble up. But as it begins to bubble up, then lawmakers are looking at it and saying, how do we deal with it? So when the National Recovery Act, which is the first New Deal effort to get the economy going, uh, uh, is passed, it makes a kind of concession to labor, to workers, by saying uh, a famous thing called Section 7A, the part of the NRA. Uh, 7A, uh, that's the part of the, law of the National Recovery Act, says that workers have a right to organize without interference or reprisal from their employer. Okay? That's the first time the government ever said this is a right. There's a new right suddenly, federal right. It has no enforcement provision, so it doesn't actually mean much. But in 1935 comes the National Labor Relations Act, the Wagner Act, which does set up the National Labor Relations Board and has a whole bunch of mechanisms in place to make that new right actually meaningful, uh, actually enforceable. So what's interesting here is, on one hand, the rise of popular movements creates pressure for legal change. But then it goes the other way. Once you get the, the Wagner Act in place, now there's a, a much easier mechanism for workers to actually organize unions. Now they, can, they don't have to fight out in the streets. They have the right to have an election. And if the workers at a particular <coughs> employer uh, vote that they want to have a union, that employer is legally obligated, whether they want to do it or not, to recognize that union as a collective bargaining agent, and they are legally obligated to bargain in what's called good faith. Doesn't mean they have to agree to any specific terms, but they at least have to sit down and bargain. So it's a reciprocal relationship. And only with the New Deal, I think, uh, can you explain how labor goes from uh, 1929, there were about 3 million uh, members of unions, by 1945, there were 15 million, uh, yeah. a five-fold increase. That, I mean, that's just huge. And by the way, there are only about 15 million union members today, so, you know, uh, with a much bigger population, obviously, and a much bigger workforce. So, so I think you can see the reciprocal changes. I'm just going to make one more point, or one, I want to just quickly talk about what didn't happen and then throw things off into the floor, okay? Because I think that is an interesting thing uh, to talk about. One thing is, there's a certain misperception, I think, that Americans have that uh, the New Deal programs were universal. What I mean by that is that they applied to everyone, everyone got them. And that was not actually the case. And, and, and when you actually look at these programs like Social Security and Unemployment Insurance and the Wagner Act, it turns out that they don't cover everybody. Uh, and that there were specific groups that were excluded. For example, who doesn't qualify for Social Security when it's first passed? Well, lots of people. Uh, domestic workers don't qualify, okay? Agricultural workers don't qualify. Public employees, none of you people would have been eligible for Social Security 
1935, or for that matter, in 1945, right? Uh, well, who are in these groups, particularly when you're looking at uh, domestic workers and agricultural workers, you're looking at a disproportionately female and non-white workforce, right? Uh, so that, in fact, the New Deal programs, although uh, in theory absolutely anyone's eligible, given the way jobs are distributed, the actual social roles we have in America, initially is key to protect primarily the white male uh, workforce, white male Americans. It's not exclusively the case, but it's primarily the case. And by the way, it's self-conscious. I mean, how did domestic and agricultural workers get excluded? Well, the farm lobby and Southerners in Congress say, you know, we don't want to give these people, really, they, they, they don't need all this money and all these protections. You know, it's just fine the way it is. We don't want any interference. And they have enough political clout to make that stick. Then think a little bit more about Social Security. How do you get Social Security retirement benefits? You get it as a worker, right? You get it in relationship to your wage, right? You know, you got a little bit deducted each month, and that's your money. It's sitting there, and the you know, employee puts it in, and then when you retire, you get it. Well, what if you don't work for wages? What if you don't work for wages? Well, who doesn't work for wages in 1930 and 1940? Women, right? The vast majority of American women, adult women, are not wage workers. So to the extent that they get these benefits, they get them through their spouse, right, as a dependent. So this kind of reinf So the point here is that, that these benefits, as good as they may be, in some ways kind of reinforce um, existing kind of hierarchies of uh, power or privilege or access to social wealth, social benefit government programs. Um, and think about, for example, the difference between, uh, let's say, unemployment insurance and what we call, used to call, doesn't exist anymore, welfare, aid for dependent children, right? Unemployment insurance is there kind of by right, right? You know, you, you, you pay into it, you're unemployed, it comes to you. Well, aid for dependent children, you had to apply for it, they had social workers that investigated your eligibility. If you violated certain moral codes, for example, you had a, uh, a, a partner that you lived with who was not, you were not married to, they would cut you off, right? Um, in other words, it's a kind of two-tier system. You know? You're aiding two different population groups, but one is with better benefits and much more dignity. The other is like you know, kind of basement, bargain basement benefits and, and a lot less dignity. So, even as it, the New Deal expands the benefits for individuals, it also um, reinforces, I guess, what you would say would be existing social hierarchies. You know? um, the other thing I would say is that uh, these programs are pretty modest compared to what a lot of other countries do. And many New Dealers wanted to have them be more expansive. You know, in the original debate over Social Security, uh, there was a lot of discussion of including government health insurance as part of that bill. And in the end, Roosevelt vetoed the idea. Not because he was against the idea, but he thought politically he couldn't get the bill through Congress if it included uh, medical insurance, you know, in addition to unemployment insurance and retirement benefits and uh, aid to dependents. And uh, in the 40s, there was a second effort to add on medical insurance to uh, the existing benefit structures of Social Security, and it went down to defeat. So this was a, quite a modest thing, and it was also funded 
in some ways very aggressively. You know, payroll tax, you know, which funds unemployment insurance and now funds Medicare and Medicaid as well, and Medicare as well, you know, it, it, it disproportionately hits the lower and middle income people. Uh, and it's, it actually is capped so that you stop paying that once you hit a certain income level. So that, you know, how do we pay for these things? Well, there are lots of ways. You take out general funds, you got to dedicate taxes. We pick a particularly regressive thing. Just one final point. What's not on that list of things that the, the Roosevelt administration does and the New Deal does is to expand the democratic rights for all Americans. And this is, again, not something it didn't occur to people to do. There's lots of people, you know, African Americans and other groups who are demanding equal, equal rights. Remember, this is an era when uh, most African Americans still live in the South, and, and that means they live in, in uh, racial segregation, denied the right to vote, uh, denied the most basic human rights. Um, the Roosevelt administration and President Roosevelt refused to support, for example, a bill to make it a federal crime to lynch people. You know, and this was introduced every year and is defeated. It, it, it refuses to support any Voting Rights Act, any federal guarantee of the right to vote. Now, you think you wouldn't need that, because if you read the Constitution of the United States, we have the 15th Amendment that says the right to vote shall not be denied on the basis of color, right, or, or previous condition of servitude. But uh, in, in reality, the Constitution is being ignored. So there's a limit to the kinds of issues that the New Deal addresses. And it's going to take another era. You know, it's going to take the era of the 1960s and the Civil Rights Movement to reopen a whole different discussion in American life, which we are still, you know, you pick up today's paper, and it's the Obama administration is uh, backing the gay marriage proponents in the California Supreme Court case. That discourse that that's part of, that doesn't come out of the New Deal. So in one way, a lot of what we live in is the residue of the New Deal, but a lot of it isn't. Uh, and that's the next lesson. Someone else is going to teach that lesson, I hope. You know, that's the civil rights movement. Uh, that leads us to our current debate over things like gay marriage and, and, and the, the expansion of rights that we have had in other areas, you know, uh, uh, other kinds of freedom and equality that the New Deal didn't address and failed to provide to the United States. Thanks.